Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. I am Ken in Indiana. And I'm Jeremy in Utah. Today we are going to be talking about what we are calling tweeners. You might ask yourself, what in the world is a tweener? Well, we're not talking about this uh, you know, 12-year-old children. We are talking about issues of the charts that... Uh, do they fit? Which column do they fit in? It kind of seems like maybe they could be a primary thing. Maybe they're a secondary. Uh, it depends on how far extreme you go with these things. These are difficult things. And where they land on the chart, we're going to be wrestling with three issues in particular and trying to discern and wrestle with, okay, why are we going to say that it fits in this column or that column? And why is it so difficult? So buckle up, get ready for this great conversation. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic. It's watered down. It has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. All right. Welcome to this episode of Do Theology. As Ken said, we're going to be talking about tweener doctrines, and I have my Zondervan Dictionary of Bible and Theological Words with me. Is tweeners I, in there? I looked in the TWs, and there is no tweener. Uh, no alas, tweener. Alas. So we'll have to submit this for the next edition of this book that probably won't exist. <laughs> but um, right now, we want to mention a couple of things. Uh, we have a store. If you haven't heard about this, we have a store. If you go to dotheology.com, you can click on a tab at the top that says store. And then you'll go to a page that has a link and you click on that link and then you're in our store. And we have a mug. We have shirts. We have a mask with the doctrines chart on it. It's pretty stupid, but it's also pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait for the first person to buy that mask and then send us a picture wearing that mask. It'll be a great day. You'll be featured on our Facebook page. We'll put you on the website. I'm making promises that Ken and I haven't talked about, but I'm all for it. Yeah, let's we're, do we're, it. We're all for it. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, the profits that we make from that go right back into the podcast. We're planning on going to the G3 conference this year, uh, and yeah, if you could support us, that would be helpful. Uh, we'd really appreciate it because when we go places and do things, we got to eat. We got to get there. We got to, you know, do all that sort of stuff. And I should mention, if you're going to G3, if you're a listener of this podcast and you're planning on going to the G3 conference, let us know. We'll hook you up with some merch, and uh, you can rep the Do Theology podcast while you're at the conference. How cool would that be? Um, yes, yes. Also, at the time we're recording this, our tournament's going on for podcasts mm. and YouTubers, Christian podcasts and YouTubers on our Facebook page. It's getting pretty exciting. We're in the Sweet 16 right now. 
Do you want to make a prediction, Ken, that will... I mean, obviously, at the time people listen to this, they're going to know, but what's right. your prediction of Final Four, who's going to win, that sort of thing? Maybe uh, just who's going to win. Uh, <laughs> I... Mm, it's So with... Uh, I would have... If you would have asked me this before this round started, I would have felt much more confident. But as it stands right now, there's some pretty tight races on uh, some of these that I was not anticipating. So... Yeah, I I am not confident. In, I would have guessed either one of the number two seed, the, uh, rather the number one seeds of Moeller's the briefing or the Just Thinking podcast. I would have thought one of those was going to pull it out, just because of how widely listened to those are. But right now, those those races are pretty tight, pretty close. Yeah, the the Al Moeller James White matchup that it looks like we're headed toward is going to be really fascinating because yeah. they're they're very similar podcasts, but they take very different approaches. And uh, that'll be really interesting. Would you say they're similar? Yeah. I mean, they both talk about pertinent worldview issues. Um, yeah, I suppose. But they take very different approaches. And so, yeah, I, I mean, so are you going to make a guess? Are you going to make a prediction? Put it on the record. Who's your favorite out of the 16 remaining? <sighs> who's my <laughs> favorite? Like, uh, who's, which who one is the one? Who do you think is going to win? Who, okay, who that's a different win? question. Um, Whatever. <laughs> I'm going to say, I think James White's going to go all the way at this point, actually. Yeah, it seems like he's going to be hard to beat. It it, Maybe the one who wins out of the James White-Al Moeller matchup is going to be the winner. Maybe maybe that's safe to say, because, yeah, I don't know. I can see see Founders Ministries really, really doing this. They're pretty excited. They're sharing it on Twitter, uh, so they're really involved. Not not all the podcasts are sharing it on Twitter, so that really does affect the outcome because it's a vote based tournament. But uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna put a nickel on Founders, and right. uh, we'll see how that how that plays out. Of course, all our listeners will be laughing at us when this drops because uh, yeah. it'll all be over, and somehow both of us will be wrong. That's right. Yeah. Somehow, five minutes in church history will beat everybody. <laughs> It could. <laughs> it could happen. Okay. I'd All love right, to see well, Revive Thoughts make a run at it. That'd be fun. Because we know would. Joel and Troy, we went to school with them. So, Yes, and we are members of the Christian podcast community with yep. uh, Revive Thoughts and with Justin Peters. So, yeah. Um, if you don't know about the Christian podcast community, just Google that phrase and you'll find the website with all the podcasts found there. But for today, let's go ahead and jump into our content. We are going to be talking about the issues of losing your salvation, of gender roles, and of the age of the earth, trying to not just talk about what we believe on it, what the issues are, that's pretty straightforward, but talking about when someone crosses the line in these issues to violate primary doctrine, i.e. become a heretic. So that's the task before us today, and if we don't want this to be a seven-hour episode, we should get started. And... uh, move deliberately through these things. So when it comes to the issue of losing your salvation, I've got a couple clips that I want to share today. And if you're watching the uh, YouTube version of this, we'll have the video uh, of this up. And um, they're both from John MacArthur. So the first one, he is sitting down with Ligonier Ministries, answering the question, can you lose your salvation? Or what? I think the question is, let me look. Okay, here's the question. Why is it impossible for Christians to lose their salvation? So the answer 
the, the question is assuming it's impossible, and then he's giving the reasoning behind it. And uh, I, the reason I want to share this is because this is the view that Ken and I hold, and MacArthur articulates it well, and it's only 90 seconds. I'm going to be playing it in 1.25 speed. So for those of you already listening in 1.25 speed, it will be, <laughs> let's do the math. Will that make it one and a half? I, I'm not even going to pretend to know. Let's let's have a math person <laughs> write in and let us know. Um, but yeah, I'm going to play this clip, and let's uh, think about the theological and more importantly biblical reasoning that MacArthur has for saying what he says so I'm gonna share my screen um, ooh you can share portion of screen aha this is cool wow schmancy okay I'm leaving all of that in less editing for <laughs> Kenneth Okay, let's see if this works. Okay. <laughs> so here, MacArthur is answering the question, why is it impossible for Christians to lose their salvation? And he just jumps right into the answer. Because you didn't do anything to gain it. Uh, I'll reverse that a little bit. If you could lose your salvation, you would. If it depended on you at all, you would. If, I, if my salvation depended on me, I would lose it. I, I would lose it. I don't have the power to hold my salvation. I don't have the power to keep my salvation. Listen to the words of, um, of Hebrews, that he ever lives to make intercession for us for the purpose of bringing us to glory. Right now, the reason that Christians are going to get to heaven is not because they hold on. It's because Christ holds on. He will bring many sons to glory. If Christ didn't hold on to me, I would never get there. That, that is the incredible reality of his high priestly work. I think we, you know, you hear this, just comment on that a little bit quicker. People say, you know, if you, want to, if you want to get in touch with the wonder of your salvation, think about the cross. Think about the cross. Preach the gospel to yourself. I say this. If you want to think about the wonder of your salvation, think about this. Christ right now, this split second, is holding on to you eternally in his everlasting arms and will not let you go. That's the most glorious reality. It isn't that you look back and look at what he did. You realize what he is doing as he ever lives to make intercession for you to bring you to glory. All right. So succinct answer, right? Mm-hmm. And solid answer. It's that's our position. Um, I, I think it was, I want to say Luther, um, who said something like, uh, "When I when I look at myself, I don't understand how I could be saved, and when I look at Christ, I can't understand how I could be lost." Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we recognize that the scriptures teach you cannot lose your salvation, and that's for a myriad of reasons. Um, I've got a two-part article on my website, jeremyhoward.net, Can You Lose Your Salvation? Parts one and two. And what I do in part one especially is walk the reader through some questions like, um, if a person is justified by faith due to his own works being insufficient to save, how could he subsequently be rejected by God because of his works? Right? Um and a whole bunch of questions relating to, can you lose your salvation? And the scriptures are quite clear. You are saved by God and there's nothing that you can do to lose your salvation. Agree. Amen. <laughs> I mean, there's all, there's a number of texts that we could reference, you know, to, to hammer home the point, right? The, the passage in John, no one can pluck you out of your, out of my hand. A father has given them to me. No one can pluck you out of my, uh, 
I'm getting it all jumbled up there, but no one can pluck you out of my Father's hand, and no one can pluck you out of my hand. Those are the words yes. of Christ, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, there's... Yeah, one of the questions I ask in the article, uh, you know, you were just referencing John 10 about being in Jesus's hand, um, and you were also referencing sealed in Ephesians 4, but mm-hmm. one of the questions I ask is, what is the time-related promise of the sealing of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1 and 4? Because they both talk about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 4.30 says we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. There's a time-related promise. It's not just you're sealed for this moment, and that's all that we can guarantee. It's you're yeah. sealed until the day of redemption. That's quite a guarantee. All right. So um, I assume a lot of the listeners, uh, the vast majority of our listeners here today would agree, you cannot lose your salvation. But now we have to answer the question... What if someone teaches that? Does that make that person a heretic? Can you actually... If they teach the contrary. Right. Yes. Thank you. If you teach the contrary. Um, If you teach you can lose your salvation, does that make you hellbound? Can you actually be a citizen of heaven and teach that you can lose your salvation? Well, MacArthur answered that very question in one of the Bible question and answer sessions on a Sunday evening that Grace Community Church does. I love listening to those. Uh, MacArthur's not my favorite preacher to listen to. I know that might be heretical in our circles. (laughs) But I love listening to Alistair Begg preach. He's probably my favorite preacher. But as far as the podcast goes, the Grace to You podcast, I love listening to the Bible question and answers because I think that's where MacArthur really shines is as a practical theologian. I think that's mm-hmm. his that's his wheelhouse. And so he's asked the question uh, by a, a man in the audience. I, I there's this man I know who loves the Lord. He's a pastor, but he teaches you can lose your salvation. Is he genuinely a believer because he believes that it's up to him to maintain his salvation? So we're just going to jump right in once I get the screen share going again. And this is MacArthur answering that question. Um, is <laughs> is this person a believer if he loves the Lord yet believes he can lose his salvation? I understand the question. This is a pastor who loves the Lord, served the Lord for years, preaches that a believer can lose salvation. Can that pastor be a true believer? The answer is, of course. Of course he can be a true believer. Uh, there are a lot of true believers with bad theology. As long as their theology is right about their sin and right about the gospel and right about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, uh, they can have other errors in their theology. And I'll, I'll give you a classic illustration. I mean, you're over there with Mark Zakovich, and uh, he can tell you from his own experience, having come from the former Soviet Union, that historically the idea that you can lose your salvation was was the foundational understanding of the whole Russian evangelical church. They all believed you could lose your salvation. I, I have spent many, many times when I went there, I spent hours and hours and hours with leaders. I remember being in Belarus, um, being in a former um, communist military camp at a pastor's conference, and we were there for three or four days in the barracks, and, and I was teaching a lot of things from the Word of God, but they kept coming back to the fact that They wanted me to know that I was wrong to think you couldn't lose your salvation, that you can lose your salvation. And uh, so one evening I gave a long uh, lesson on how you cannot lose your salvation. In the first place, it's eternal life. And uh, Romans 8, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, nothing at all, Paul says. So they, the leaders of that group, after I finished that, spent all night 
They didn't go to sleep. I went to sleep. I slept like a baby. I had my theology right. They, they stayed up all night and they were – by morning they had a whole list of questions and Bible passages that I needed to answer. Now these are precious pastors. These are, these are men who, who were persecuted for the faith, some of them imprisoned in Siberia for the faith. These are people who loved the Lord, who stood firmly against the communist powers and communist government for Christ. So yes, there are many Christians who, uh, who don't have a full understanding of sound doctrine, uh, but they, they are true believers. Again, the, the, this all starts because you have a, a faulty idea of salvation, and that is that it's something that you have to hang on to rather than it's something from God that He hangs on to. Your security, never in Scripture is your security tied to your ability to hang on. It's always tied to the promise and power of God. But sometimes when that's a very traditional doctrine that's been around a long time, people give it up less easily. And I think in the case of the people in, in Russia, what they saw when the communist revolution came and what they saw when persecution came against believers was that many people who professed to be believers walked away. And so one explanation is that they were never saved and they, uh, they demonstrated they were never saved, like 1 John 2, they went out from us because they were not of us. But their interpretation of that was they walked away from salvation, they walked away from eternal life, but they were true believers. So I, I think true believers can believe you can lose your salvation even though they can't, okay? So they have a better theology than they actually know. They are secure even if they don't think so. That's the goodness of God. Good question. Okay. All right. So, Ken, how do you interpret what MacArthur said in his answer in light of the chart? Well, he's saying that it's a secondary issue, essentially. Well, um, he's certainly saying it's not a gospel issue. Correct. Yeah. Do you think he, he really is saying it's well, secondary? No, I, I, I should catch myself on that. Um, no, because especially when in the first... Uh, in that first clip from McCarthy you played earlier, he's pretty, really strong on that. So, yeah, I, I would say that he was not um, not indicating that it is a gospel issue, but probably would stick it down in the, uh, in the dogma section in that first column. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a pretty appropriate balance yeah. there. I, I mean, he was very charitable. Uh, toward the other position, and I, I, I think I think he did a great job answering that question. This would be a good moment to to, to just for anybody listening to re just refresh what we mean when we're putting something in the primary column. A lot of times, people identify the primary column as if you believe these things, you're saved, and if you don't believe these things, right. you are automatically not saved. <laughs> like you are on your way to hell. And, and that's, it's not as simple as that, is yeah, it? That is that is not how we understand the first column to be. So we understand that first column to be teaching what is helps us understand what is historic Orthodox Christianity. And these are definitional things to the faith. These things are foundational to the faith. But we're not necessarily saying that someone who is outside of the bounds of that first column that they are necessarily hell bound. They may be. Yeah, but right. we're not saying they necessarily are, and and we place certain doctrines in the category of primary doctrine, 
because they transcend hermeneutics. Yeah. That's why they're definitional to Christianity, because beyond a shadow of a doubt, these things are taught in Scripture. So what we're saying then with this issue of losing your salvation, that it is clear in Scripture that you cannot lose your salvation if we're going to say it's primary and it's and if we're going to be dogmatic about it. And- if If it's... Secondary, that means, yeah, Scripture talks about it from both ways. It seems like from our perspective, and obviously from God's perspective, there's just one truth. But from our perspective, we can see both sides, and it's really difficult. It just depends on your hermeneutics. But we're saying, if we're agreeing with MacArthur, we're saying that this issue is primary. Though it's not a gospel issue, Yeah, uh, the gospel is included in primary doctrine, but not all primary doctrine is gospel. So we're... We're going to land there? Is that where you want to land, Ken? Yeah, I think that's that's where I want to land. Because the issue, the, um, <laughs> it's, it's, did he say whether or not he changed their minds up there at the end? I can't, I don't remember. He didn't, I don't think he, he said one way or the other. It's uh, if yeah. You're talking about the, the, the Russian communists, yeah. the ones who are dealing with communists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he didn't say. Yeah, so uh, I I know someone, I know several pastors right now that currently make several trips over to Russia a year. Well, I say currently, non-COVID years, yeah. you know, they make a bunch of trips back and forth. And I know that this is still, this is still a significant sticking point with, yeah. uh, with those brothers that, you know, the, the, the pastors that go over, they affirm eternal security and it's, yep. it remains a continual issue, even though there's agreement on the gospel and there's agreement on virtually everything else. That mm-hmm. one issue is still a sticking point in the, in the Russian <laughs> Christian church. And one of the men who makes those trips, uh, who believes in eternal security like we do, but ministers and trains, uh, ministers to and trains those men over there, a mutual friend of ours. Mm-hmm. He told me that that the particular Baptist domin- uh, denominations over there that he works with, don't baptize until a person, I think it's 25, I think is the age that oh, he told me. They want to wait and see uh-huh. <laughs> all the way, all the way till, you know, true adulthood. Um, yeah. So uh, over there you can rent a car and get baptized at the age of 25. <laughs> but, um, pretty interesting stuff. So yeah, I, I do think it's a serious issue. I do think someone is an error if a person believes you can lose your salvation. Like I said, I wrote articles about this. I passionately teach eternal security because of God's sovereignty and salvation. When he saves, it is totally his work. And this was planned before time was, and it's secure through eternity future. So uh, it's a big deal. However, a person can still affirm justification by faith alone, right? (laughs) By grace through faith. And then inconsistently believe mm-hmm. it can be lost by works. As long as the person understands that salvation is only obtained by grace through faith, uh, that person is still a Christian, uh, just one who embraces a heretical doctrine. <laughs> and that's where we would say small h heresy, right? Small and not, h, not, yeah. a, not a capital H. So it's the reason why it is really it really is a significant issue is because of the implications of if we follow that logic through if we say that that your actions and your works can cause you to fall away from genuine salvation you the logical extrapolation from that doctrine is that 
you are actually saved by your works mm-hmm. because it is your works that is maintaining that salvation. And that is the that's the giant red flag in the midst of this is just like, no, 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 we can't, we cannot go there. Justification is by faith and faith alone. But like you said, there's an inconsistency where they affirm yes. justification by faith alone and they believe that genuinely and honestly. It's not just lip service. They genuinely believe that. And yet they're holding to this other inconsistent, even contradictory <laughs> doctrine of of uh, uh, losing your salvation. Well, but they're still affirming justification by yeah. faith. So, yeah. And this kind of goes back to the when should we separate episode that we did in talking about, okay, so you run across somebody like this, someone that's in your church or whatever. Um, this is something you want to talk to that person about perhaps in whatever context you're in, because it might not even be in the church. It might be in a parachurch organization or something like that. Depending on the context, you may be able to still coexist, even though you have a doctrinal difference on this issue, but that doesn't mean you just agree to disagree and don't ever talk about it. You should certainly on this issue as a Bible believing Christian, a church loving Christian, seek to convince that person of the biblical position in love. I, I imagine that it would be difficult for someone who who affirms that you can lose your salvation to join membership with a church yeah. that says you know, that affirms eternal security. Unless you're in Russia or Africa yeah. or Asia, and you can't just go to the church down the road that fits your doctrine a little more cleanly. Yeah, could I, be. Yeah. And and I'm out here in Utah. I mean, so that's a thing. We've had people in our church I, I who believe this, and so. Yeah, when you don't have a surplus of churches, you just kind of have to work through things as they come up. So, uh, well, let's get into egalitarianism and gender roles. But before we move on to that, I want to tell you about the local church. The local church is a gathering of believers in Jesus Christ, all living in a similar geographical location. The church is guarded and fed by qualified men known as elders, who seek to care for each person's soul. Together, the gathering sings, observes communion and baptism, prays, and studies scripture. You can find accountability, encouragement, admonition, and great love in the local church, and it's for every person who calls himself a Christian. I've been going to the local church since 2005. I've been blessed by it majorly. No doubt about it. To find out more about the local church, go to a good one on a Sunday morning. And if you need help finding a good one near you, you can reach out to us by finding the contact tab at dotheology.com. That's dotheology.com. Now, as we get into gender roles, Ken, where do you think we should start? So uh, I do want to say that real quick before we fully transition, there's probably so much more that could be said about all of these topics, right? We're really just kind of scratching the surface with some of these things. So if there's a particular comment or question about any of these topics that you want to dive into a little bit more and want to dialogue with us, email us, showdotheology.com, send us a tweet, at dotheology, all that, all that kind of good stuff. So egalitarianism. So uh, with, with the... Eternal security issue, that was not on our chart, which we've always said from the beginning that our chart is not exhaustive, so don't take the chart to be something that it's not intended to be. But the issue of gender roles, it is on the chart. And if you were to pull up that chart at dotheology.com slash chart, you would see that we have this primary column, and down in that practice section of the primary column, you would see gender roles. 
Now, we have placed that there because we believe, and it is very crystal clear in Scripture, that God has created men and women, that they are equal in value, in worth, and dignity, and yet God has given unique roles for men and women as it pertains to the home and the church, and we recognize that distinction that God has has put in place. And so that is that's essentially the position known as complementarianism, where we believe that God created men and women different, but in a way that complements each other, equal in value and worth, but different and complementary, which stands in contrast to egalitarianism, which denies those distinctions and affirms that we're not only equal in value, worth, and dignity, but our roles can be equal as well. Yeah, and uh, even duplicate, uh, yes. not not just equal. I mean, because in a sense, as we're talking about value, the roles are equal, even though they're different. Um, egalitarian goes as far to say as they're interchangeable. Right. Uh, the men and women's role in the home and in the church, they you can just exchange it out however you see fit. Yeah. Some people would try to say that this is a secondary issue. That eh, it doesn't it doesn't matter so much. I mean, you can you can believe in complementarianism or egalitarianism, and it's really not that big of a deal. It's just kind of make your decision and go forward. And we want to be very careful about thinking through this biblically and understanding. Okay, there there are really good reasons why this belongs in this primary column, and why we cannot just say, eh, you know, yeah. Take make your conviction on that, and and that's just fine. No, no, we we need to approach this biblically. So, the the clearest biblical text that I believe that helps us uh, think through this issue is First Timothy chapter two, and I'm going to read that uh, that passage. Um, oh, I had it pulled up, and now I've closed out of it. You don't have it memorized, Ken? Yeah. And you call yourself a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> First Timothy, first Timothy 2. Yes, First Timothy 2, verse, I'm going to pick it up in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So there's that passage that, on the face of it, seems to indicate, hey, yeah, this is the Paul's command for that women should not be teaching in the church, which is where th- th- this is really an application of the complementarian position of how this works itself out in a local church. Paul says, no, uh, uh, the man is to be the one in leadership. The, the office of elder is restricted to men. We could look up the qualifications for men in the next chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and then Titus chapter 1, where it is a man that is the elder has to be a one-woman man. That is a requirement. But, you know, people wrestle with this passage, and there have been all kinds of people that have tried to spin this passage every which way they could try to make it go to try to finagle out of this interpretation in order to open the door to other things. And we are saying that, no, we can't actually do that, and and there's reasons for that. I'm going to play a clip for us, and this is going to be um, a conversation between Tim Keller and D.A. Carson. And these two individuals, um, obviously we don't agree with everything that these two men necessarily bring to the table, uh, but this conversation here I think is is helpful for us as we think through this issue. Can I just say, 
that is the most awkward looking video setup that they could have <laughs> chosen for this. They're standing at a cocktail table thing that has a, a full size tablecloth over it, and they're they just it looks very very awkward. Yeah, there, but, there's a whole series of these videos on there. This is the the Gospel Coalition YouTube channel. Yeah, I guess there's a whole lot of issues with Gospel Coalition that we won't go into right now. But uh, for now, this conversation between Tim Keller. Tim Keller is asking the question about, okay, how do we understand this First Timothy 2 passage? And earlier in this conversation, uh, they both agree that you know, we can't just throw our hands up and say, this is a difficult passage. We can't understand it. Therefore, I'm going to do whatever seems right to me. They both say, no, we cannot take that approach. But listen to the question that, that Keller asks— in relation to, okay, so why is this passage eternally applicable? It's not just a, uh, a a cultural thing. So here we go. Because he is. But how would you answer that question? Um, how do you know this is a transcultural um, uh, uh, piece of uh, an exhortation that, that's true for all time and all time? As opposed to Greek one another with a holy kiss. Yes. Yes. Um, two things. Uh, Paul grounds his argument first in the order of creation, and second, yeah. in the order of the fall. Now, hmm. you, you, can, you can wrestle quite a long time with exactly what that means. I, I'm, I'm prepared to venture uh, a suggestion, but the point is it's hard to think of any events in, in all of the Bible that are mm -hmm. less uh, culturally dependent <laughs> than, than the yeah, order of creation. Certainly. It's, it's not as if Paul is saying, no. now, considering, considering the relative ignorance of women who don't have enough education, therefore I forbid such and such. Right. That's not what he's saying. No, he's not. It's, it's, it's tied in his own argumentation to two things that yeah. are massively transcultural. Yeah, he, it almost seems like he may know somebody might question. At least, yeah. certainly, it is an inconvenient that he does that yes. uh, for people who really don't like the exhortation. The only thing I say, again, as a practitioner is... Uh, if somebody says, how do you know it's a transcultural passage? I say, well, how do you know it's not? Uh, especially when you're talking about a New Testament passage, it seems to me that the burden of proof is on the person who says it's not, and it should be a very high bar. And, uh, and in light of the way he ties it to the, the creation and the fall, it's very difficult to see how he, anybody could get over that. And I've heard people try to do it, and I just think they're pretty unconvincing. There you go. So he, he he highlights those two things there about okay, this is clearly a an issue a exhortation that is not just it's not just a cultural thing and he highlights the fact that it's tied to creation order number one and to the fall number two and and I again <laughs> I've got some issues in different parts of of Tim Keller so don't take this as an endorsement for everything that that uh, that these gentlemen are but. In this in this scenario, I really appreciated the way Tim Keller said that the if we're going to look at any passage of scripture, and then try to conclude that it was just a cultural exhortation, there's there needs to be a really high bar of evidence that you need to clear in order to to make that conclusion. Because what ends up happening is when we start doing that over clear texts like this and trying to argue, well, this is just a cultural thing. You're actually reinterpreting the text according to whatever rubric that you're bringing to the table. And once you start doing that, you're opening up the door for everything to be reinterpreted to say, well, why isn't, why isn't homosexuality? Why isn't that something that is just a cultural exhortation? Or why isn't, just name whatever practice you want to name, you're opening the door for all of those sorts of things. And so we need to be very, very careful when we, when we approach that. Um, but the text is clear. 
and the, the grounding is clear. So that's why this, this really does belong in this primary column. And again, this is one of those things that we would say, okay, it's very, very clear. This is what, this is, what is being taught. If someone is violating this, does that necessarily mean that they are hellbound? I'm not prepared to, to make that statement, uh, to, to say that they are necessarily hellbound. Uh, I think it's possible that someone could be egalitarian in their philosophy and still be a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. But this is a very serious issue because of, in order to arrive at the egalitarian position, because of the level of reinterpretation that you have to bring to the table, that does create all kinds of issues down the road for where this this sort of reasoning can lead. And so it is a very dangerous thing, and it is a very important thing that we need to make sure that we're keeping keeping doctrine in its place. Got any comments there? I have a ton. I've been waiting for your monologue special to get over right. again. <laughs> Usually so, you just interrupt, so go for it. <laughs> hey, hey. Interrupt, huh? That's wow. right. Shots fired. Shots, shots fired, <laughs> big time. So I don't like Carson's reasoning at all. Really? <clears throat> um, yeah. I I shouldn't say at all, but I don't like it. Um, the Rooting it in the fall, I think, is a really bad idea because uh, gender roles existed before the fall, right? Um, he says when, the two things there. There's the creation order and the fall. Right, but I'm going backwards. Yeah. So from uh, so the fall, I don't, I don't like that at all because... Um, God came looking for Adam at the fall. Uh, he didn't come looking for Eve. Eve sinned first, but he came looking for Adam, right? Uh, because Adam was created first. Uh, he had headship before the fall. And so when the fall took place, that headship was recognized when God came looking for him. And if we start talking about... Uh, gender roles being a result of the fall, then that means it's not the way it, it should be. Uh, so I don't like going down that road at all, tying gender roles to the fall for that. Um, but the other thing is rooting it in the creative order. And I know that that's an argument that we use, and I think rightly so. You know what else is rooted in the creative order in Scripture? Head coverings. So what's your argument to that, Ken? I don't want to get into that passage. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> oh, man. I did a whole... I had to write a paper for head coverings, and that is just a, a mind-numbing passage in so many ways. <sighs> yeah, we've got... I've got a book on... Um, just on First Timothy 2, 12 to whatever that is, 12 and... 12 to 14 or 12 to 15, whatever. Uh, it's by multiple authors, edited by Andreas Kostenberger, titled Women in the Church. So it is a very difficult issue. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have to think through these things. And and going beyond First Timothy 2, it's not like First Timothy 2 is the only passage. Right. I know you introduced it at the beginning mm -hmm. as the main passage or, or the, yeah. It's the main passage uh, for the church. It. Yeah, yeah, I would say, right. as far as the other, women's uh, role in the church. Yeah, you get into Ephesians 5, where it talks about in the home, mm -hmm. uh, husbands are to love your wives, women, uh, wives are to respect their husbands. Um, 1 Peter 3 gets into it, Colossians chapter 3, 
talks about it, uh, just a variety of places. First uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1, talking about elder qualifications, like you mentioned, there is an assumption that it's men leading in the church. <laughs> there, there's no room to, to fit women into an elder role in the qualifications. So uh, overall, there is a resounding, clear message that there are distinct gender roles in the home and in the church. They are of equal value, but they are distinct. Yes. And I, and I, uh, you push back a little bit on, on, uh, Carson there and, and I, I understand where you're coming from and I, I don't, I think his argument was not so much, this is where gender roles come from so much as this is the evidence that this passage is not just a cultural exhortation. Yeah. So that's, that's the distinction I would see in, in and maybe he does believe that it's, that that's where the gender roles come from. Um, you and I would both affirm that the gender roles come from God's good design, right? That is how he has designed men and women to be. Um, and so I would agree that, you know, if, if we start saying that gender roles are a result of the fall, that's problematic. Um, yeah. So I would, I agree with you on that point. But I think Carson's point was not about where these things come from, but he's pointing to evidence in the text that this is why we're saying that this is not just a cultural exhortation, but it's, it extends beyond that. Uh, and those are, those are the things that, these are the reasons that Paul gives right in the text. Why is it that, uh, that, that women should not exercise authority in the church? Because, verse 13, for Adam was formed first. Like, it's, it's right there in the text. So that's, I think that's Carson's argument. Um, yeah, and so. I think that that's why I said I think the creative order uh, aspect is one that we probably should use because Paul uses it. We just need to be more nuanced with it because if our women aren't wearing head coverings, that means yeah. <laughs> uh, we're being inconsistent or there's something else going on. And and that's the problem with like a three minute clip from the gospel coalition where they're right. trying to answer this is you don't get any of that nuance. True. So. Yeah, that's fair. And that the head coverings passage is a infinitely more complicated passage than than this passage. Like this passage, you can break down the, the first Timothy two passage, you can break down the grammar and it's like in the, in the, the, the words that are used and it's all crystal clear. You try to start getting into the first uh, Corinthians 11 passage and you just start scratching your head all over the place. And it's a lot harder. Well, that, a lot of that has to do with our presuppositions though, too. Uh, you don't scratch your head if you're a Mennonite and you're used to wearing head coverings. It's a, it, you read it and you say, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So but we'll see how I preach it here in yeah a few months when know. we get to First Corinthians eleven. <laughs> Not looking forward to that one so much. But that's the beauty of expository preaching, isn't it, Kenneth? Amen. Amen. So, um, I did. Ready to move on? I think so. I think um, uh, there's one other thing that I might have. Um, nope, we're good. Move on. Okay. Well. Let's talk about Age of the Earth for a moment. Um, we get a lot of feedback on this one about uh, why is Age of the Earth in the second column. So we were just talking about gender roles, which so is in the first column. The very top of the second column, we have Age of Earth. And people look at that and think, what's going on there? Um, probably because most people, when they think Age of the Earth debates, they think evolution yeah. versus uh, biblical creation. So that's where most people's minds go, but we've mentioned it before and uh, we'll mention it in the future again, that there is a range where people fall on this. You don't have to be an evolutionist 
just because you believe the earth is older than six to 10,000 years or however you want to frame that. Yeah. So, um, can I, any, any other initial thoughts as we set this up and get into a clip from, from my experience of personal conversations with people about the chart, this is, I would say that this is probably the area of the chart that gets the most pushback. Is that been your experience at all? Um, pretty, pretty high up there. Uh, I had, I, don't know for me but it is up there yeah. yes i would say up yeah. there i don't know if i would say the top one but it's, it's definitely the top one in the circles that that i'm in out here and there's yeah and and understandably so i'd say the top one i get asked about is losing salvation people oh, will yeah. ask why isn't that on there because they just want to know where where they should place that which we're not the arbiter of that uh, the chart is not authoritative but it is a great question mm-hmm. that we have to think through so um Okay, age of the earth is in the second column because we do not believe that the exact age of the earth transcends hermeneutics. This can be easily understood when you consider, ask somebody how old the earth is, and that person will say about 6,000 years old. That person might also say uh, probably close to 10,000 years old, or another person might say about uh, somewhere close to 10,000 years old. Uh, The fact that we're saying about and we can't say a very specific number, that means that its specific age is left up to hermeneutics to a degree. And the vast majority of people aren't going to try to draw out a very specific age. Have you ever heard of anybody trying to nail down a specific age? Yeah, actually, I have. (laughs) Oh, that's frightening. Yeah. You just do the math. Do they have very convincing arguments? Um, They're just uh, extrapolating out from uh, genealogies and such, but the... uh, I, I don't recall the specifics of it. They're just they're just doing a bunch of maths, and then on a few areas where maybe the the number isn't quite as clear, they're supplying you know a average number or a this makes sense number based on the ages of other things. Hmm. So there probably there's probably a lot of overlap on the Venn diagram of them with rapture guessing people. Uh, <laughs> guessing dates for protology and eschatology probably go hand in hand. But, uh, yeah, we shouldn't do that. That's a bad idea. <laughs> it's a waste of time. Um, and so we, we have to admit from the get-go, there's at least some wiggle room on this uh, from a Bible reading hermeneutics perspective because the Bible just doesn't say um, the earth is X number of years old. Uh, but our hermeneutic is important. That's not to say our her- hermeneutic doesn't matter or it's not important. Mm-hmm. And so I want to play a clip from Revealed Apologetics. This is a good podcast with... Eli Ayala, he hosts a presuppositional apologetics uh, podcast, and he's interviewing Dr. Jason Lyle. And in this clip, they're getting they're going to review some clips. Oh uh, we're not going to, but we're not going that far. So they're getting ready to review the clip from the beginning. And here, right before they get into viewing those, Jason Lyle provides some background information on hermeneutics and how we approach the text as young earth creationists, meaning it's not millions of years old. In fact, it's probably not over 10,000 years old. And I thought it was really valuable, this little snippet of him talking about how we approach the text. And so um, at the beginning here, Ayala is going to make reference to the um, uh, person that they're going to be reviewing, whose last name is Jones. He's going to make reference to that, um, that person. And then Dr. Lyle is going to respond talking about hermeneutics. So here we go. Well, Jones, I believe, holds to the 
theistic evolutionary position, which is the view that God used evolution. And so he holds to um, an interpretation of Genesis that is very much in line with someone like John Walton, who I just previously had on my show. Um, so if you're interested in what uh, John Walton um, says with regards to how to understand Genesis, that's kind of, I mean, he might have some differences, but that's kind of where uh, Michael Jones is coming from. And so just to create that context, and of course, Dr. Lyle, it holds to a, a young earth um, we would say a literal interpretation, right? Of course, we want to explain what that means, but well, why don't we explain what that means first? Now, let's get that out of the way. When we speak of interpreting Genesis literally, what do we mean by that, Dr. Lyle? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's going to be an issue in this in this video. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've kind of got away from saying that because a lot of people, the, the word literal, when you talk about reading something literally, you just mean in its plain and ordinary sense. Sure. Uh, but some people take that to mean, oh, you mean every word has to be taken in its in its the first dictionary definition. No, that's not really what we mean. Uh, biblical creationists like myself interpret the Bible literarily. I think would be a better way to put it, which means we we uh, we read the text and we take it at face value unless there is a contextual reason to take it otherwise. Okay. And in some places there are contextual reasons to take it otherwise. And so I don't take the Psalms literally when you know when the Bible says there's no rock like our God, it doesn't mean I don't, it doesn't mean that God is basalt. Uh, it, you know, it, it, we understand that as a metaphor, and we would expect that in the poetic literature. That makes sense. What we want to avoid is looking at a text that makes sense in the plain text, but it's contrary to what we've been taught. And so we think, well, it can't mean that because then I'd be wrong about. Well, maybe you are wrong about whatever. Uh, so we want to we want to read the Bible exegetically, looking at its text, interpreting according to its own standard, and and that includes looking at the way Jesus interpreted the scriptures, looking at the way the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, interpreted the scriptures when they're penning the New Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, there are certain rules of hermeneutics, and I, and I have written a book on this called Understanding Genesis. Uh, basically, we read the Bible the way we would read really any other book in the sense of we, we use the grammatical historical context to understand the author's intention. What is the, tr what is the author trying to say? That's what we want to get at. Mm -hmm. And that implies taking a text in a plain fashion unless there are contextual reasons to take it otherwise. Okay. Would you also understand interpreting the Bible liter liter or maybe this is what you said, but kind of I'm putting it in my own words just to make sure I'm, I'm understanding. To interpret the Bible literally is to basically interpret it in accordance with its literature. So that would include genre and all those other considerations, cultural background, contextual background, things like that. Yeah, and to avoid any confusion, I don't even say that I read the Bible literally because I, 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 people think that means a wooden literal sense. I, I like to say I read the Bible literarily. I okay. take it according to the type of literature that we're looking at. I interpret it according to its context. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, and by the way, that is that's the normal position for biblical creationists like myself. My friends at Answers in Genesis would take that position too. And okay. so, our, our critic here is going to argue against a position that we don't exactly hold to because he's going to he, he seems to think that we take everything in a wooden literal sense. And that's not the case. We use context to determine the meaning. All right, so we'll stop right there. Um, Ken, I know you've said before you don't like to use the word literal either when talking about hermeneutics. Yeah. So you uh you tracking with dr lyle and thinking he explained that pretty well yeah i was loving that that's ex that's exactly his issue is exactly my issue when i start saying oh yeah i use a literal hermeneutic it just conjures wrong ideas in people's minds that that don't approach it with the same hermeneutic that i do and so they assume something about my approach that is not true it's not accurate 
it's and, and he he did a great job of explaining. I, I don't know if I would use the word literarily, just because that people may not be able to understand that too. But just yeah, yeah, that could have some weird connotations <laughs> also. <laughs> Grammatical, historical, contextual. To me, that covers it. Yeah, and he uh, he takes a view of Genesis one and two that leads to a young Earth view, just like we do. Um, Eli mentioned his interview with Dr. John Walton. I believe he's a doctor. Uh, you should listen to that uh, if you haven't listened, dear listener, to uh, that conversation because John Walton offers a very different perspective on Genesis 1 and 2 based on ancient Near East studies and documents and resources that we have now that people haven't had for a long time. Therefore, there's a new view of Genesis that we are able to have now because of our access to these resources. I really don't like it when people mention ancient Near East stuff. I feel like it always ends up in a weird theological place that very rarely do people lean on ancient Near East sources and then uh, come in line with the historic (laughs) Orthodox Christian faith. But uh, that interview, John Walton was basically talking about how in Genesis 1 and 2, it's particularly 1, it's not talking about God building a house, but God ordering a home. So it's not talking about God building with wood and nails and all this material and, and things of that nature, but instead he's ordering the home and making the the house or the universe a home. He's ordering things. Not It's not focused on how he literally built things. So that's a very different hermeneutic approach to the text. The question is, can we live with that? As Christians in the greater Christian community, I'm almost certain at a local church level, we can't live with that together (laughs) because that has very far reaching implications. Yeah. But just thinking about on the broader context online or in organizations, is there room for different views of age of the earth based on the hermeneutics you bring to Genesis one and two? What's your comfort level with that? So, uh, (laughs) uh, it's it, it is hard, honestly, uh, and this is this is one of those areas that is this was probably the most painful thing to slide into that second column when we were reviewing the chart and we were making updates to the chart for this to to put this one in this column was certainly the most difficult for a number of reasons because of the implications that I think can be drawn out. But ultimately, when you take a step back, so, so first of all, when, when people start talking about age of the earth, there does come a point where their reasoning goes too far and it does infringe upon first column stuff, right? We, we, that is clear. When we start getting into evolution, yeah. yep. it messes with the original Adam and Eve and the original sin and all those sorts of things. It creates major problems, especially when you start trying to read Romans chapter five and seeing how, okay, there's the first Adam and now we've got the second Adam and it just... It doesn't work. <laughs> it's like um, a, a chip in your windshield that spiders out. Yeah, uh, that has those cracks that spider out. And as long as that chip just has little little spider legs, it's going to be okay. <laughs> but it once that starts extending, I mean, the glass gets weakened, and eventually the whole thing's yeah. going to fall through if it continues that direction. That's a good analogy. It's a lot. I like that. It's a lot like that. I yeah. like that. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to steal you, you that can one. Use it anytime, free of charge. All right, very good. <laughs> so, so where? I mean, at what point then does it cross the line? If if we say just evolution, then that means there's quite a bit of freedom 
and reading Genesis 1 and 2. As long as you exclude evolution, then you can believe the earth is really old. You can insert all sort of theories like gap theory and whatnot between the days and and hold to a very old earth. And I, I mean, perhaps you can get as weird as, I bet this view exists. You can get as weird as God used evolution to bring the animals about, but not Adam and Eve. Then Adam and Eve were a special creation. Yeah. That's... How, how much leeway do we get it, get to give? Because this isn't something that the Bible tells us about as far as the leeway aspect and how much space there is for disagreement. But we have to reconcile this. It certainly is hard because there are uh, specific individuals that that we know that have held to different positions on this than we have, yet while also affirming everything in that first column and denying evolution. One of those was a Bible college that you and I both had in Bible college. He uh, believed that the earth was anywhere from ten to 50,000 years old. And I don't remember the reasoning of how he got there, but that was his position. He affirmed Everything and he 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 affirmed. Um, it, it was a weird. It was a very strange position I, I felt for him to take, just because he was affirming the historicity of Genesis one and two, and yet he was arriving at this different conclusion. Another individual that is uh, people would know more widely is Wayne Grudem. He does not hold to you know a, a six thousand year old Earth. Uh, he, I don't know exactly how old he thinks it is, but from his perspective, he he seems to think it is much much older than than what we would consider to be right based on uh, yeah. reading our reading of Genesis. Tim Keller, who we were just listening yeah. to in the previous section, he's another one. Mm-hmm. So, and these are all individuals yeah. <laughs> that deny evolution, and and to me that seems to be a pretty big sticking point, like and and a, a significant. I don't know if litmus test is the right word, but a good a good barometer of where people are going to go if if they're denying evolution. I don't. Know, it's kind of a tricky line to walk because it's like, okay, you're denying evolution. Well, then what? Uh, what? On what basis? What is your motivation for? Again, I'm I'm kind of bringing assumptions to the table here because to me it's just mm. so clear. Genesis one is just so clear that how could you take it any other way? And if you are denying evolution yet you're you're pursuing a different age, then you must have some other motive of bringing something to the table. Yeah, yeah, it's well. Let, let me uh, let me read to you what R.C. Sproul said once. Uh, actually, not that long ago, 2012, at a national conference. He said, when people ask me how old the earth is, I tell them I don't know, because I don't. And I'll tell you why I don't. In the first place, the Bible does not give us a date of creation. And that's what I was trying to communicate earlier. I think we're all Mm -hmm. on the same page there. Now, it gives us hints and inclinations that would indicate, in many cases, a young earth. And at the same time, you get all this expanding universe and all this astronomical dating and triangulation and all that stuff coming from outside the church that makes me wonder. Don't expect R.C. Sproul to say stuff like yeah. that, huh? Well, he knows he knows better <laughs> than that now. He does. Yeah, now he's he believes the earth is 6,532 years old. So. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, pretty interesting. The, interesting stuff. Because ultimately that's the issue. It seems that you, if you're just going to open up your Bible and read— you're going to conclude that it's roughly 6,000 years old. But it's when people start looking at scientific data of different sorts that they begin to inf- be influenced by the scientific data that they're looking at that makes them say, well, 
it it looks older than that, so maybe I need maybe I need to relook at this Genesis thing. And then they begin to start formulating different ideas and different interpretive decisions are made on the basis of they're they're actually starting with a starting point of secular scientific data. That's a problem yeah. to me. Yeah. Now is it yeah yes. is it so much a problem that I'm going to say those individuals are heretics? Yeah, probably not on that issue alone. But boy, that it's an indicator of a big issue. It I mean, is. It's a red flag. Yeah, it's a major red flag. Yeah, and that's why it's a worldview shaping issue, right? In the secondary column, because it does shape your worldview and how you approach the scriptures. So yes, yeah. Well, there's a lot of stuff that you can read on this. Um, Answers in Genesis has an article on their website titled Influential Pastors and Theologians on the Days of Creation in the Age of the Earth. And they go through and have different guys listed in quotes from them and their um, response to these people. So you can check that out. That's where I got the R.C. Sproul quote, and uh, there are several others on there, John Piper, John Piper Michael Horton, D.A. Carson, Tim Keller, a variety of people. And uh, it's a very difficult issue, but we have to draw the line somewhere. And if you reject a literal atom, you have certainly crossed into heresy, yeah. uh, perhaps even damnable heresy, depending on how far it's carried out. I mean, if you reject a literal atom, you now have rejected headship, the imputation of sin, um, Paul's whole reasoning of imputed righteousness in Romans 5. Uh, it it's a bad place to be. So um, that's why age of the earth is in the second column, but that's also why we struggle. And hopefully that's enough to get people thinking because we, we can't really reach a conclusion from our perspective, but we can at least think through these things uh, deeply. Anything else to add to that? What do you mean by we can't reach a conclusion? We can't reach a conclusion on any individual's uh, eternal destiny. We can't reach a conclusion on, whether, um, you know, a certain view of age of the earth is absolutely heretical or not, <laughs> but we can at least start charting things out a little bit and put markers up on the, on the scale yeah. and say this, these are places you shouldn't cross. Uh, but in between the markers, it gets really complicated. Yeah. Put up the warning signs, put up the guardrails and when, and there are, there's the clear points where, okay, you're definitely past the guardrails. That's it. But, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Um, Before we finish, we were going to highlight a comment that we got on a recent video. Do you have that pulled up, Ken? I'm pulling it up Yeah, I do have it pulled up. Oh, good. Yeah, go ahead and read if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so this was on our our last episode that was just you and I speaking uh, on the guilty conscience, the seared, cleansed, and wounded conscience, which you can find that on your podcast feed or on YouTube. And this was a comment that was left on YouTube. Someone said, very well done. This was from Gary Miller. And he says, I wish you much success. And I subscribed. And I th- we thought that was just very, very kind of him to, to give us those nice words and to give us that subscription. And we ask that you would do the same, that you would find your way over to YouTube, hit that old subscribe button, hit that bell button, because that will help us out. It'll help you be aware of content. And I don't know if you knew this, if you're listening just on audio, we do have a YouTube channel and we have all of these conversations are recorded. If you want to look at my bald head and Jeremy's ugly face, you can do that to your heart's content. So yeah, thanks for the, uh, for the comment, Gary. Hmm. Appreciate that. 
We are, where are we at on subscribers? Do you have that in front of you still? Um, the number of subscribers on YouTube, 636. I've got 636. 636. Yeah. Okay. Help us get to 1,000. Cool stuff can happen on YouTube once we get to 1,000. So if you would subscribe, that would be a blessing to us. And until next time, do theology.